it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, February 27th, 2023. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Then around the clock for free, on demand, our podcast is always there for you, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us, social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's Instagram. We're very active and busy on both of those platforms. Also, yours truly on both of those platforms as well, on a personal level, at Guy P. Benson. So you can follow us both ways, if you so choose. If you're new to the show or just testing the waters, we are delighted to have you. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, where I write one or two posts every day. I'm also the host of this program, in addition to being a Fox News contributor on the TV side of things. So I've been kind of busy. I was out of the country for a few days, so I was off TV, and then Gutfeld on Friday, which was a blast. Then the big Saturday show, the big Sunday show, co-hosting those programs, outnumbered for the noon hour today. So busy times here in New York City, and now we are here together on the radio side, and here's the lineup that we have in store. Later this hour, here joining us, Sandra Smith, our colleague. Fox News. A lot to get to with her. Looking forward to Sandra. Josh Krasauer to kick off our next hour, talking about President Biden. Will he or won't he run for re-election? He keeps getting asked. He keeps sort of punting. Is there more to that, or is he just biding his time? We'll ask Josh. Jason Rance is not just on the show, our friend and colleague. He's here in New York. So he'll join us in studio talking about crime, particularly an absolutely insane story out of, where else, California, Southern California to be specific. We'll tell you those details later on. And then Bill Hemmer, another one of our colleagues here at Fox News, he will join us in studio here in New York. So we are locked and loaded for a very big program ahead. I'd like to begin with this story, which we talked about a little bit over the weekend on TV, and it was our lead story Today on Outnumbered as well. It is a Wall Street Journal report that was the center of attention at the White House briefing today as well. The headline, Lab Leak, Most Likely Origin of COVID-19 Pandemic, Energy Department now says. The U.S. agency's revised assessment is based on new intelligence. So this is the Biden administration's Department of Energy. I'll just underscore that. Let me read to you the first few paragraphs of this uh, this Wall Street Journal report. The U.S. Energy Department has concluded that the COVID pandemic most likely arose from a laboratory leak, according to a classified intelligence report recently provided to the White House and key members of Congress. The shift by the Energy Department, which previously was undecided on how the virus emerged, is noted in an update to a 2021 document 
by the Director of National Intelligence. The Energy Department now joins the FBI in saying the virus likely spread via a mishap at a Chinese lab. The Energy Department's conclusion is a result of new intelligence and is significant because the agency has considerable scientific expertise and oversees a network of U.S. national laboratories, some of which conduct advanced biological research. So there's some extra oomph, some extra relevance to the DOE reaching this conclusion. Now, there are some things that need to be said about this. I've said a few of them on TV. I've said a few of them at townhall.com. I'd like to flesh out some of those thoughts here. Let us not forget. Let us never forget that there were people, credible people, who were suggesting that maybe, just maybe, the lab leak theory was viable all the way back near the very beginning. Senator Tom Cotton, for example, from Arkansas, at the very beginning of the emergence of this pandemic, before it really even hit all around the world as hard as it ultimately did, he was throwing some shade and some skepticism on this idea that it was, oh, just a wet market and the bats and that it jumped from animals to humans and that's what happened. It was naturally occurring. Now, I'll remind you in that same context, remember, it was also considered racist to say that. They tried to tell us it was racist to say it came from the wet market, and then it's also racist to say that it came from the lab. There were people trying to shut down any real discussion of where this plague came from. Remember all the stupid arguments that we had about whether mentioning the word Wuhan or China was like, problematic or racist and it was terrible for Trump or anyone else. I mean, this is what they hammered us with in the media and on the left for months, really for years in some ways. Now, to me, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist. I don't know this stuff. Right? My job is to try to read, synthesize information and give opinions and occasionally do some reporting. This is way past my competence. Or my expertise. So I remember back then saying, okay, most people are saying of the experts, right, the establishment, the people who were giving the marching orders, they were telling us that this probably arose naturally from bats. And then maybe it got transmitted to humans somehow, and then the rest is history. But there was this other question about could it have been engineered in a lab, which then had some sort of security malfunction, and there was an escape. Almost no one was saying that this was a bioweapon that was deliberately unleashed by the Chinese government first on the Chinese people. That was sort of the conspiratorial side of it, but that's not what a lot of responsible people were suggesting, including Cotton in the early days, and he was fact-checked to death. They piled on that guy. Oh, it's completely unacceptable How could he say such a thing? We've been playing on the news channel just montages of fact checkers and our competition in cable news saying that it's widely discredited and the dangerous conspiracy theory that the senator from Arkansas was pushing. They came after Dr. Nicole Sapphire as well. CNN, in a very sort of indignant way, said that she was dangerously spewing debunked 
claims. None of the stuff was debunked. Obviously, the lab leak theory was never debunked because I think, and it always made sense to me, that the lab leak theory had a lot of plausibility to it. I mean, you had this virology laboratory with a history of shoddy performance, security problems, breaches and that sort of thing in the very city that just happened to be ground zero for this pandemic. And they were doing exactly the kind of research that might have led to something like this happening in that very lab in that very city. Now, look, if they had found the animal right at some point, the jump has to go from an animal to a human and then off among humans. If they had found the bat or what have you and they could prove scientifically through their methods. Yep. Here's how it happened. This is where it happened from this creature. That would be one thing. But guess what? We never found that. That animal was never found. That connection was never confirmed, even while you had people like Dr. Fauci dismissing the lab leak theory, massively downplaying it. By the way, he's getting thanked in private emails from another American who is getting a lot of that sweet, sweet research money from Fauci to that very lab in Wuhan. Like, oh, thank you for shooting down the theory, which was then and is now a viable theory. And in fact, now it's the leading theory of the Biden Energy Department. But they were telling us, no, 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 that's that's highly unlikely. There's no evidence of it. Here's one of the other points that I've made now multiple times, but I think sometimes you have to take a pause and go back and sort of refresh the record because there's a lot of people doing a lot of gaslighting and pretending like, oh, the things that were said and we're not allowed to be said that they're just trying to erase that history. Like, of course, it mattered where this thing came from, from the onset. It matters today. I know that we've largely moved past the pandemic, and thank God we have. But millions of people around the world are dead. Billions of people had their lives dramatically disrupted. Think about the effects on people losing their work, losing their businesses, losing their freedoms, being forced to do things that they didn't want to do. Think about what we did to children, especially in this country. In the Western world, we treated our children, I would say, clearly the worst. Ignoring data, ignoring science, we've been through all of this. This was a massive disruption to the entire planet. Many Americans died. Many more Americans were harmed in many other ways. Where this thing started is relevant and it matters. And the point that I was getting to is, again, just using Occam's razor and basic common sense and reason. If you're the Chinese Communist Party, right, if you're a communist regime and you are confident that this was a naturally occurring virus that happened in nature and it was just very bad luck that it happened to show up in your country. And it's like ruining the world literally for a number of years. You would think that the Chinese government would welcome openly any and all international investigations because you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get vindicated here. They're going to do the research. They're going to find this bat or this animal or what have you. 
and it will be just this unfortunate twist of fate, an act of God, a naturally occurring disease. It is in their interest for them to want that to happen. You would think that if they were confident that were the case, they would have, with open arms, welcomed all these investigators from around the world to get to the bottom of it. But that's not what they did, is it? They did exactly the opposite of that. They shut down investigations. They pointed fingers. They issued threats. They allowed one sort of fake investigation where they handcuffed the researchers and wouldn't let them go places and lock down all sorts of their access. Why might they have done that? One might ask oneself. And the answer is pretty obvious. Their behavior always pointed to the lab leak, which is embarrassing for them, which is a huge stain on their national reputation and how people would view them around the world. It makes perfect sense, looking at their actions and their obstruction, that the lab leak theory was at least a very serious one. And yet, month after month after month after month, it was racist and horrible and a conspiracy theory and misinformation to even whisper about it. All right, if you were someone with some sort of pedigree in the scientific world, or even just a sitting U.S. senator, and you said this, I mean, the wrath of these people came down on you like a ton of bricks, and they brought out the heavy artillery rhetorically to just bombard you into pariah status. And yet now, here we are, 2023, you've got the Department of Energy citing new intelligence, now agreeing with the FBI that the likeliest explanation is the one that was staring us in the face from the very beginning, but that a lot of people told us should never have seen the light of day, and shame on us for even mentioning it, you crazy conspiratorial weirdos, you traffickers of misinformation and disinformation. This is what they've done over and over again, even within COVID. You talk about natural immunity. We were just discussing this with with, uh, Dr. McCary last week. You bring up natural immunity in the context of public policy. That's misinformation. That's dangerous. You fight mask mandates every step of the way. You're a dangerous anti-science zealot. This is the stuff that they threw at you from the position, supposedly, of the defenders of truth and the defenders of science, and yet that wasn't the case. And what we saw over and over again from these people, many of them in the journalist world, but also in like the public health bureaucracy and elsewhere, they had a narrative They had a quote-unquote truth, and they were going to stick to it and defend it jealously regardless of what the data showed. And a lot of it felt like it was about politics and an agenda and control. And they used these words like conspiracy theory and misinformation to disqualify, like they've done on other fronts, like the Hunter Biden laptop, for example, disinformation from Russia. We all remember that. And the people who pretend to be the guardians of the truth— in fact, undermine our collective value for the truth by using these types of words, throwing them around, these smears and these epithets, being wrong about it, and then having no introspection and no accountability. That's why a lot of people don't trust any of them. And it's dangerous. It actually is dangerous because when dangerous 
actually false information shows up, misinformation, conspiracy theories, they have less credibility to combat them because they've called true things or at least arguably true things misinformation for their own political purposes. And they've done this to themselves. And I think credibility matters. Background matters. Track record should matter. And as I said today on TV, if you've been wrong over and over again while screaming that everyone else is not just wrong but dangerous and it keeps getting debunked and blowing up in your face, maybe it's time to step away from the lecturing business to the rest of us. Just a thought. Maybe I'm wishing against hope. Maybe that's just too much to ask. We've got a break. I went long. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting started. A new broadcast week underway. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This virus did not originate in the Wuhan animal market. Several of the original cases did not have any contact with that food market. The virus went into that food market before it came out of that food market. Because of China's duplicity and dishonesty from the beginning, we need to at least ask the question to see what the evidence says. And China right now is not giving any evidence on that question at all. I'm Guy Benson. That was Senator Tom Cotton back in 2020 saying at least ask those questions. And for that, he was rewarded with just a huge, giant roundhouse collectively from the media and the left. How could he say such irresponsible things? Except in all likelihood, he's right. He was right and is right to this day. And finally, you've got more and more official entities catching up and kind of admitting it, including the Department of Energy with new intelligence, and given their expertise in this area running U.S. labs, I mean, it matters. It's significant. Where does Tom Cotton and others, where do they go for their apology from these people, the arbiters of truth who are just so often wrong, and they just declare the truth to align with what they want to be true, which is not the way that truth actually works. And they have harmed themselves, their reputations, and public trust as a result. I'm not sure we'll ever get a final answer because the Chinese destroyed the evidence. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Sailing along through our first hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for joining us, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Our podcast is free every day. With us now, Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports, 1 to 3 Eastern. That's p.m. Every weekday on Fox News Channel alongside John Roberts. And Sandra, always good to talk to you. Hi, 
Guy. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So I want to start with inflation and the economy and the president. We saw in the new Fox News polling some really poor marks for Joe Biden on the economy, on inflation. Uh, There was another poll from ABC News and The Washington Post that found that more than 40 percent of Americans say that they are worse off financially than they were when Biden took office. Only like 16 percent said that they're better off. Biden was asked about it in an interview with David Muir, and he basically said, well, it's because the media only focuses on the negative. I mean, it's also because people know what their financial situations are, Sandra. I find that to be uh, not a terribly persuasive talking point from the president. Yeah, and um, this is what matters most to voters. I mean, time and time again, every election cycle, what do we ask? You know, how are you How are you and your family doing today uh, versus a couple years ago versus a year ago? In this case, you look at things have only gotten worse when it comes to inflation and the economy. Um, people care about their ability to carry on with their life and not worry paycheck to paycheck. We know 64% of the country is living in that fashion right now, and that that means tough times for so many people. As far as this latest polling goes, it really shows the sting of inflation continues to just rail on the average American family. 57% say they have less money in their pocket than they did a year ago. Now, that is up seven points from the 50% that said they felt that way last February. So that situation is not getting better. It's getting worse, guy. And those feeling hardest hit are Republican women. Uh, 78% um, say they have less money now. Rural whites, 69% of them. Gen Xers, 63% of them. Uh, and voters with annual income below $50,000 a year, guy, 62% of them, uh, say that they have less money in their pocketbook than he did a year ago. And to me, guy, someone who looks at the markets and the economy and the overall, overall economic situation of this country so closely, that to me is a further sign that the very people that the administration says they're out to help the most are getting hurt the most. Um, this inflation situation is extremely painful on the the, the lower-income American families, and that mm-hmm. turned up in this latest polling. We also got the actual inflation data last week. That was bad. I mean, worse than expected on multiple levels, and we read – from a number of tweets, Jason Furman, an Obama-era economist, a Democratic economist, was running through that latest inflation report and was just like, man, the top lines are bad. When you dig in a little further, it's bad. This is an economy that's way overheated. He said 6% inflation is more likely than 2% inflation. He's like, there's a lot of serious warning signs here. And I think some of that came as something of a shock to a lot of people, Sandra, because we had sort of been told that we had turned the corner and the thing was finally heading in the right direction. And even though it might take still a very long time to get down to low inflation, at least we were heading in the right direction overall. And then you look at some of the numbers, it's like, well, not so fast, actually. Maybe there's been improvement here or there, but on other major you know, sectors of the economy and, and goods and services, uh, the numbers are not going the way that they need to go, certainly not at the rate that they need to go. It just felt like That was a a kick in the stomach to a lot of Americans last week, reflecting how people are feeling. They're not making it up. They're seeing what's happening. And here's the data to back it up. Right. And I just saw a Bloomberg piece that was 
questioning whether this 2% inflation goal is even a realistic target anymore. I mean, what are we talking about here when we're uh, still living through this historic inflation? What I, I get concerned about is that we just learn to live with the inflation, that we just learn to live with it. I mean, guys, look, look at magazines from, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Prices never come down. Once you reach these heights of inflation, it's almost impossible to go back. And so you're going to have to have a major adjustment as far as wages um, from all the businesses in this country are struggling through this. You're going to see all those price uh, adjustments on, on your menus when you go out to dinner. Those prices, just rarely do they come back down. Once they're raised, they tend to stay there. And then you have another inflation crisis and they go up again. The disconnect from what we're hearing from those tasked with bringing down inflation should concern everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, Janet Yellen sat down in a new CNN exclusive interview and said, so far, so good on the U.S. inflation battle. To your point, Guy, that's not what people are feeling right no. now. And th that's that's really that's really tough. On a political question, Sandra, I saw that the RNC made an announcement that they're going to require all of their candidates who run for president. Right now, there are three who've announced there'll be more that if you want to participate in the debates, which I guess they're saying would start uh, in August, if you want to participate, you've got to sign a pledge to ultimately support the Republican nominee for president, no matter who that is. And I mean, that's all well and good. I remember everyone promised last time in 2016 that they would do that, except Donald Trump. And then he won, and some of the people who had pledged to do it then reneged and wouldn't support him. So he wouldn't do it, then they wouldn't do it. And it's like, okay, I just don't really understand what the point of this kind of exercise is because it's totally unenforceable, right? You can you can sign a pledge or not sign a pledge. You sign the pledge to get in the debate and then something changes. Politicians lie and change their minds all the time. It's like, oh, you know, you've got to support the not or else what? I just don't really understand the point of this. Yeah, I mean, she, uh, Ron McDaniel hasn't exactly put the criteria out yet, um, but she does say that she expects a pledge to be part of this. Uh, it was part of 2016, she referenced, and she believes it's a no-brainer. And she said, quote, if you're going to be on the Republican National Committee debate stage asking voters to support you, you should say, quote, I'm going to support the voters and who they choose as the nominee. Uh, she thinks this is a pretty obvious play. I, you know, I think we'll soon see if there's an appetite from voters for this out there. Um, but she said, as RNC chair, if I said I wouldn't support the Republican nominee, I'd be removed from office. So this is obviously um, something she feels very strongly about. Um, but there's going to be some huge econo economic discussions and foreign policy debates uh, that are going to take place there and could be really hard to avoid <laughs> opposite scenarios popping mm -hmm. up guys mm -hmm. i don't know yep. but here we go i mean we're almost into full-fledged 2024 and um this is going to be a big one i'll have nikki haley on my show tomorrow really looking forward to that get her reaction to the energy department confirming uh the lab leak and um the white house just now john kirby not exactly saying there's consensus yet um, some might be appalled that we can't come to a consensus and we should be appalled that there isn't one. Um, so I'll get her reaction to that because of course she is one of the Republicans who has thrown her hat into the ring. On that point, since you raised the lab leak issue, we opened the show with it today. And part of it is, you know, a we told you so type situation. I 
at least in the early going, was sort of agnostic on it. I just wanted to know what the facts showed. And it always made sense to me that the lab leak theory should at least be plausible or viable, if not likely. And now it's, of course, likelier and likelier. I think the fact that the Chinese covered it up as hard as they did is evidence in favor of the lab leak because that's something that would embarrass them as opposed to something naturally occurring. But what really gets to me about this, Sandra, is people being completely rational, suggesting that it might be possible a couple years ago were roundly denounced as crackpots and dangerous purveyors of misinformation. That's where I feel like the accountability needs to be. Not like, oh, ha ha, we were right all along. The people who were wrong weren't just wrong. They were aggressively wrong and trying to silence anyone who might disagree with now what is increasingly the consensus view. That's what bothers me. This this tendency of certain people to try to disqualify things that they don't agree with as misinformation, and they're just wrong over and over again on a lot of things. Then they look around. They don't understand why their credibility is in the toilets. Like, you know, have some self-awareness, guys. People were canceled over this. Yep. I mean, um, that that's, that's real. That really happened. Um, I can tell you this. John Kirby, we were um, – anticipating his presence at the White House press briefing, which we just carried live on our on our program a few minutes ago. And he was asked by our own reporter, Jackie Heinrich, how will the president respond to China? And Kirby replied, let's not get ahead of where we are. Well, how are we getting ahead of things? China really has put out a statement accusing the United States of a smear campaign. Yeah, defamation. Um, after the U.S. Department of Energy confirmed the Lab Lake theory. They've, they're, they're openly accusing us of a smear campaign. We should be responding. We need to respond. So to, to, for Kirby to come out to the podium and say, let's not get ahead of things here, there's no getting ahead of that actually happened. So yep. it's fair to say there's still really not a firm response from the United States to just that alone. And and, um, and they want to use terms like defamation, stop defaming us. It's like, well— We're just following the evidence, and just to beat this horse one last time, Sandra, if they wanted to not be quote-unquote defamed and they're truly innocent in this whole thing, they could have just allowed credible international investigations to happen into what happened uh, and and to to play out. They didn't do that, famously refused to let that happen, and I think it's reasonable to put that in to the algorithm when you're trying to figure out what the truth is. When you have the government there, the authoritarian communist regime, refusing to allow the truth to even be robustly investigated, you kind of draw some conclusions. It's entirely reasonable, plus the other evidence that's come out. They are, of course, trying to defend themselves and counterattack. It's what they do. It would just be nice to have the United States, like, standing up to them, like, in some sort of significant way based on the evidence that we have and based on their actions – blocking the truth from coming out because they didn't want the truth to come out. And you can draw your conclusions why that is. I just wanted to put that out there. Sandra, before we go, I do want to, in our few minutes left together here, talk about a big national story, at least a big national fascination. It's this trial down in South Carolina. I know that we've been cutting in on the news channel a lot, following a lot of the developments, listening to the examination and cross-examination of the accused party, Alec Murdaugh, who is charged with murdering his wife and his son, even just a few weeks ago, I knew nothing about this trial. 
And then people were talking about it. I watched the HBO documentary. Now I consider myself something of an expert. <laughs> just having watched just you know, a few hours of, of a doc on HBO, I have not followed every twist and turn in the trial and in the testimony, but obviously some very big lies from this guy have been exposed and yet he does have defenders and they're trying to put reasonable doubt out there and pointing the finger at other people. I've had people in social media saying, well, hang on, there's reasonable doubt here and there. As you've watched this go down, Sandra, what are some of your takeaways? Um, just completely uh, dysfunctional. Um, I think people are in awe that a family that looked on the outside to be all put together, wealthy, well-dressed, well-known in society, to have everything be an absolute disaster inside. Um, I would happen to be traveling last week uh, when the, the, when they dropped the bomb and said he was taking the stand. And I was so surprised, Guy, to your point. You said just a short time ago you weren't following this, and now you consider yourself an expert. <laughs> I was so surprised traveling around. How many Americans are really tuned into this? I mean, it's been six or seven weeks now, this live streaming of this trial. Um, but it is a spectacular downfall of a powerful guy and a powerful family uh, in America, in the low country of South Carolina. And um, I think everybody's got their theory on it. Yep. And um, I don't know how this ends. I actually just talked to Nancy Grace about all of this. She's obviously got her... Um, she says he is a liar. And, you know, now they're going to let this. Well, well, hang, hang on, Sandra. In fairness, she says he's a liar. He says he's a liar. He's admitted to lying. I mean, the just the body count around this family is extraordinary from the boat crash to the housekeeper to allegedly, uh, you know, this this young uh, high school or early college student found in the road. I mean, there's just so much sinister stuff that surrounded this family for a long time. And I recognize that Alec Murdoch is trying to use that as one of his counter theories, like, oh, someone wanted a revenge against his son, so they must have committed the murder. He had also tried to implicate, like, the groundskeeper at his house also in the murder, just sort of flailing, trying to blame anyone else. To me, Sandra, and my last thought is, clear away everything else, this guy lied about being at the murder scene, and he finally had to admit it because, unbeknownst to him, his voice was accidentally caught on a Snapchat video, and they had all these people saying, yep, that's his voice. So I think he would be denying to this day that he was anywhere anywhere near it until he couldn't deny it anymore, and then he had to come out and say, oh, gosh, I guess, yes, I was there, and I did lie about it, but oops, but I still didn't, I still didn't kill them. That, at least to me, seems pretty devastating. Last word to you. Uh, the jury's going to go to the crime scene. Um, yep. I don't know if that helps or hurts his case. Um, his defense of the lying has been he was paranoid about his pill addiction, uh, among other things. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I think that's why the country's fascinated, Guy, and I think people are going to continue to tune into every minute they can of this. So we'll see where it goes. I don't know. But um a lot of people like you who didn't know all the details. There were so many twists and turns. They're into it now, and they're watching. And now this bombshell today on the possibility of there being two shooters at the scene. So, yeah, that's what the defense know. is trying to argue, at least. And uh, I don't know either. We'll see. Jury watching all of it most closely, as they should be. Sandra Smith, America Reports, every day, 1 to 3 Eastern Time. 
with John Roberts on Fox News Channel. Sandra, always enjoy it. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, guys. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Listen to the music. Wedding bells are ringing. For the one and only Congresswoman Cori Bush. Democrat of Missouri, member of the squad. Now we'll get to who she's marrying in just a second, but I would like to remind you, go back not that far down memory lane, she is one of the true believers on defund the police. Not redirect fund uh, funding away from the police to other, you know, advocacy and community groups. That's what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were in favor of, at least for a, a minute, right, back when it was politically required on the left to at least wink at the defund the police people. Now they've run away from that position, say it's like a total smear. Total smear. No one defunding the police. What are you talking about? Republicans defund the police, like all of their blizzard of spin. But they engaged in one of the forms of defund the police. But Cori Bush was like hardcore. No, when I say defund the police, that's what I mean. She's been pushed on it, and she has doubled and tripled down. But she's very concerned for her own safety, which is why she hired a bunch of private security with, I believe, campaign money to protect her on the campaign. So sorry, everyone else. If you need the police, that's your problem because of equity. But Cori Bush, she had private security for herself. But there's a happy ending because she fell in love with a member of her private security detail. And now they're married. Congratulations to the happy couple. I'd say Mazel Tov, but some of her squad member friends might not like that for some reason. Huh. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. New broadcast week on this Monday from New York City. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Around the clock for free on our podcast. That's an option as well. GuyBensonShow.com for all of it. That's GuyBensonShow.com. If you're looking for the podcast, another option is FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram. Or me personally, at Guy P. Benson, on those two social networks as well. Joining us now, Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios. Josh, good to have you back. Hey, Guy. Great to be back on the show. So looking at some of the new Fox News polling, it's not exactly good news for President Biden. He's underwater on every issue that is polled. Some he's sort of closer to even, but deep, deep underwater on immigration even worse on inflation and the economy. Republicans still with at least theoretically an advantage over the Democrats on a lot of these top issues head to head. Although we saw a lot of that same phenomenon heading into November and the Republicans underperformed in a significant way. So it just seems like you've got an American public right now not happy with the party in power, not happy at all with the president, especially on some of the biggest issues, but also not sold on the opposition party either. Yeah, that's right, Guy. And look, Biden's job approval in the Fox poll is 
hanging around at 43%. I feel like in every poll you see in the last year, it's low 40s, mid 40s, a couple points lower, a couple points higher, but just kind of stuck in that uh, not you know mediocre position that, that hasn't really moved all that much. Um, and look, I think the biggest takeaway in the Fox poll is along the lines of what you said, the economy is still being perceived by most Americans as weak and volatile and, and not meeting many families, not uh, feeling more confident and, and more well-off financially than they were a year ago. Uh, the biggest movement in the poll, I think, it was the president's numbers on the issue of Ukraine. Uh, he had his best approval rating, I, I believe, in the Fox poll and I think in other polls I've seen as well in terms of how he's handling the Ukraine crisis, about 40, even Stephen, about 50 percent approved, 50 percent disapproved, which is higher than his overall approval rating. But look, this is a president who's had remarkably stable job approval numbers over the last year. They've been underwater. Uh, the, the, the Democratic Party, the voters, at least in the party, not uh, super excited about him running for, for a second term. There's still a majority of Democrats wanted, want some, someone else to run, <laughs> want, want him to, to step aside with his age. But look, he's, he's steamrolling ahead to a re-election campaign. And as you note, Guy, the Republican Party has its own problems and its own challenges. And in that same Fox poll, it's Donald Trump with a, with a pretty sizable lead over Ron DeSantis and, and you know, not that, not that off from 50 percent in, in the Republican side. So there are a lot of challenges on both on both sides. And uh, Biden is certainly looking forward uh, if he runs for re-election to, to run against Donald Trump. Do you think he is running again? Because he's been asked this question a thousand times. He's got sort of a pat answer. In fact, here's the most recent time he was asked. This was ABC News. David Muir cut 34. The president answering the way that he has on multiple occasions. Let me ask you the question everyone is asking. Are you running? Well, apparently someone interviewed my wife today, I heard. I heard and, that, too, just before and, I came and in. I, I got to call her and find out. No, all kidding aside. Uh, my intention is from, hasn't been, been from the beginning to run. But there's too many other things I have to finish in the near term before I start a campaign. All right, so that's the explanation. The word intend shows up. And I go back and forth on whether or not this is just like a wiggle word because he wants to wait longer and doesn't want to officially announce it yet, but also is telegraphing that, yes, indeed, he's running, or if he's just buying some time because the die actually isn't cast yet in terms of a decision being made. And look, I get it. People have made the point, and I was on the big Saturday, big Sunday show over the weekend, co-hosting one of my co-hosts made the point that Barack Obama right before his second run, his re-election campaign, he didn't announce till what would be months from now. And I get it. Right? Sometimes people are impatient and they're people trying to create a story where one may not really exist. But the flip side of that is Barack Obama wasn't 80 at the time. Barack Obama didn't have a majority of the Democratic base hoping for someone else to run. These are not the same circumstances. And I guess... My question for you, Josh, is when you see the president go back to this placeholder answer, this formulation of the intent is to run, does that sound to you like they're going to get around to it pretty soon? They don't want to tip their hand or are they just kind of delaying having to make a decision? Yeah, everything I've heard suggests that he is running for re-election. And look, he wouldn't be doing the party any favors that if he if he was trying to be coy about this, I mean, waiting waiting until the spring to 
retire if that was the case, uh, that would really uh, put the Democrats behind the eight ball. It would, you know, force a lot of candidates to rush into preparing for for some. some but some, but some just to jump in, devil's advocate, Josh, it would also the sooner he announces he's not running, hypothetically, the sooner he's a lame duck which he also, no president wants to be a lame duck. Of course you want to push that off. I'm not saying that's what he's going to do, but I think, you know, at some point he and some of the people around him have to say, is this man who's really, is he capable? Is this a man who's really capable of being president in this job for six more years? And clearly many Democrats believe the answer to that question is no. I'm not saying that I have any special knowledge here. I just still have at least a little bit of skepticism. Yeah, look, I, I, I think the concern in the Democratic Party among its institutional class is that if he stepped aside, you either would have Vice President Harris as the frontrunner uh, in, in the Democratic field, or you would have a really, really messy ideological civil war. with a, and, and the party's best candidates are probably not ready for prime time until 2028. You know, the, 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 the Warnocks of the world, the Josh Shapiro's of the world. There are some, I think, pretty talented Democratic leaders, but but they're not ready for prime time. At least they're not ready, you know, just being elected or reelected. I, I think the timing would be a little bit odd um, in 2024. So, yeah, like I, I think – the age factor is undeniably a problem for Biden. Every poll shows it. Majority of Democratic voters think Biden is too old. It's a known known. And it's a problem. Uh, but I think that what's pushing Biden ahead is, number one, the fact that uh, the Republicans have their own problems and their own challenges that may end up being worse than age uh, when push comes to shove. And the known unknown about, um, you know, who would replace him, that there is no obvious candidate in waiting. And it was actually got it was a an op-ed in the New York Times today by Obama's former uh, counsel, Greg Craig, openly panicking about trying to figure out a way to get Kamala Harris off the ticket, saying she's the biggest vulnerability the Democrats have in 2024, and coming up with this very convoluted idea of having a primary for vice president, because that's the biggest problem oh, the Democratic Party has. So it's a, I, I, it was very unrealistic, but it also speaks to where the party is at this moment, that there's more fear or as much fear about a running mate in, in Vice President Harris and her political standing uh, as there is with, with, with where President Biden is right now. Josh Krasauer, I mentioned just a moment ago the GOP underperformance in 2022. Of course, that applied on the House side, where the majority is not nearly as big as it could have been or really should have been, frankly, but a big failure on the Republican Senate side, where they actually lost ground in that chamber. Now, 2024, looking ahead, we've discussed how that landscape is about as friendly as it can possibly get. Just looking at that map for 24, from a Republican perspective, a lot of seats could be picked up, potentially at least. And now there's new leadership at the campaign arm for Senate Republicans, the NRSC. Last cycle, it was Rick Scott. He's taken a lot of criticism. Now it's Steve Daines, Republican of Montana, taking a very different approach. Talk about some of those differences. Oh boy, it's it's like night and day between the the leadership at the Senate Republican uh, Committee. Uh, number one is uh, they're actually working really hard to recruit candidates they think can win elections. So uh, I would keep a close eye guy on West Virginia in the coming couple weeks. Uh, Governor Jim Justice, who's quite popular in West Virginia, who has high high job approval numbers back home. Uh, is very, very likely to run for the Senate against Joe Manchin. And I think if he does get in the race, I think it's more likely than not. Well, we'll see what happens. It's just from what I've been hearing um, on, on the political radar, Joe Manchin may not run for re-election. Uh, he may end up stepping aside. So that that is a big domino on that Senate map because 
if West, if, if Senator Manchin retires, let's say he doesn't run for re-election, Justice is the front runner, then you would get the 50, and then all Republicans really would need is get one more seat, one, one more race. And whether it's Montana, Ohio, there's a long list of both red states and purple states that Republicans would be able to, to, Arizona. to, to get the majority. Arizona with cinema, that, that, that may be a problem too for Democrats. So West Virginia is, is, is really significant because if justice gets in, we'll see what Manchin does, but but it's really hard without Manchin for to imagine Democrats can hold that West Virginia seat, and then all you need is one more, basically. Um, the other thing is you're, you're seeing clear, you know, prime, good candidates being recruited, and not just Justice, but Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania. He was just at a big NRSC event this past week. Um, you know, you're seeing involvement in primaries. Steve Daines is the chairman. He's from Montana. Uh, there's a worry about the two congressmen in, in Montana have, both having ethical issues or having some political baggage, ideological issues. And Steve Daines is, is actually, from what I understand, working to try to find outsiders and people who are not necessarily involved in politics because they understand how important winning uh, those, those seats, those red state seats are, and how important having good candidates as the representatives of the party is for, for, for the Senate and, and just for the party at large. So, yeah, I mean, this is Rick Scott, it's not just about endorsing candidates, guy. Rick Scott said he never would endorse a candidate, but he wouldn't even, you know, say nice things about a good candidate that was looking to run for, for a Senate race. He just stayed out of this process entirely. I mean, that would be like a coach in college who just decided not to do any recruiting, he just wanted to focus on the coaching and, and, and you know, be like Nick Saban saying, I'm not going to actually go visit, visit recruits. I'm going to let them c- come to me. Um, it, it was it really there was a lot of malpractice, I think, at the committee under Rick Scott, and uh, there's a lot of changes taking place this cycle. You just name checked Pennsylvania. There's another race, Senate race there in 2024. Looking back at the last one, of course, you have Senator John Fetterman, who's now had a number of different significant health challenges. He's been to the hospital a couple different times. We wish him the very best in his personal health, obviously, and we pray that he's able to thrive. But obviously, as a U.S. senator, he is really struggling, and it's been kind of a weird story. And I wonder if there's any buyer's remorse among voters in Pennsylvania or any guilt among the people who really were pushing him to keep going, going, going on the campaign trail when it looks like that was probably not in the best interest of his own health. Yeah, I I don't hear much of that on on the Democratic side. I I think we all— pray for the best uh, for, for Senator Fetterman. He seems like he there's some serious, serious health issues, not just with the stroke, but but with the, the depression, and it can't be easy to be going through that at, at this point in time. But look, I, yeah, I mean, from, from the political side, it, it's very messy. Uh, there is talk, and I've heard from both Democrats and Republicans in Pennsylvania, that if that seat opened up, if Senator Fetterman had to resign, because of the health challenges he's facing, uh, you would have two. You would have, if it happened, I think before the summer, you would have two two Senate elections in Pennsylvania in in 2024, or maybe even tw- I think as early as 2023, perhaps. But you, you could have both Senate seats uh, being in play. One, one one not unexpected, but you know we'll hope hope for the best with Senator Fetterman. But there is worry that he may not be able to stick around the Senate. And if that happened, that would mean there was, there's another Senate election uh, that would take place. We'll be watching that. PA always a very interesting state, an important one on the presidential level and on down, of course. Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Josh, appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Guy. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on the other side. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So let's see. We've got Donald Trump as an announced presidential candidate. He's been in the race since November. Nikki Haley got in just a few weeks ago. She's been all over the place. The polling I've seen has her in the mid-single digits, not really bumping that much, but getting at least some support. Vivek Ramaswamy, the businessman, is a declared candidate. Sort of an interesting guy, interesting thinker. I'm not really sure if that's going anywhere. But there are still some big names being discussed that have been discussed for a long time who are biding their time, waiting for their moment, because the field will be certainly much larger than three. My fear is that it will be 12, 15, 20 again. Maybe not. But there are some shoes left to drop. And, of course, a big one is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. What is he going to do? My general inclination, my suspicion is that he's running. He's acting like someone who's running. But we won't really know for sure until after the Florida legislative session, which is this spring, it's underway. And so the scuttlebutt has been there'll be a decision officially made, then an announcement one way or another, May and then possibly June. You might circle June on the calendar as we approach the month of March here. So if I had to guess, if I had to bet, I think he's running. I'm not totally confident in that. However, I saw that his team put out a video on social media that, to me, felt like, looked like, sounded like a presidential announcement video just without the actual presidential announcement. Everything else about it had the look and feel of, hey, I'm in. And you can hear it for yourself right now. Cut 36. When the world lost its mind, when common sense suddenly became an uncommon virtue, Florida was a refuge of sanity, a citadel of freedom for our fellow Americans and even for people around the world. Ron DeSantis has decided to put his people first. Ron DeSantis taking a lot of heat over it, but he's not backing down. Florida's success has been made more difficult by the floundering federal establishment in Washington, D.C. An inflationary spending binge that has left our nation weaker and our citizens poorer. It has enacted pandemic restrictions and mandates. It has recklessly facilitated open borders. It has imposed an energy policy that has crippled our nation's domestic production. This has caused many to be pessimistic about the country's future. Some even say that failure is inevitable. And a lot of this is pulling from his second inaugural address in Tallahassee. So a lot of dark images about D.C. and mismanagement and dysfunction and failure Some even say failure is inevitable, he says. And then comes the uplifting part, the other side of the story, the counterpunch in Cut 37. Florida has proved positive that we, the people, are not destined for failure. DeSantis wins. He has made a promise, and he's making good on the promise. Florida is leading the nation. We are the nation's fastest-growing state. We rank number one in education freedom. We are number one in economic freedom. Florida also ranks number one in public higher education. This is a record we can all be proud of. That's why the left hates Governor DeSantis because he's a winner. That's what the guy does, he wins. Decline is a choice. Success is attainable. And freedom is worth fighting for. 
and you almost expect him to say, and I'm Ron DeSantis, and that's why, dot, 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 but he doesn't. And the juxtaposition is Florida against the feds. I get that. It'd be a great campaign video if he were running for re-election in Florida, but I think he just checked that box recently by almost 20 points. So what's this about? Draw your own conclusions and stay tuned, I would say. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. Jason Rance in studio here in New York City when we come back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show from New York City today. We're bouncing all over the place this week on the show. We'll fill you in on that schedule as the week unfolds. GuyBensonShow.com is our website regardless. Wherever we are, that's the online home. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. And joining us here in studio, in the Big Apple, someone whose voice you know, whose face you see, I have never met you in person until today. It's Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show on our great affiliate out in Seattle, KTTH, also crime correspondent for Tucker. It is so good to properly meet you. Isn't it weird that we have known each other for years years, yeah, and never actually met? See, when we met today, because I was showing up in the green room for Outnumbered, yeah. and you were waiting for Harris's show, and we met and we were chatting, and I was sitting there, eating my sandwich for lunch and thinking, have I not met him before? And I was like, I don't think I have because it feels like we've met because we've talked yeah. so many times on air, off air, mm-hmm. on your show, on my show, on social media, and now finally in person like normal human beings. It's very much a 2023 kind of thing. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. You were on Harris's show today, this morning, Faulkner Focus, talking about this story in New Orleans And it's kind of like an encapsulation of an effect that we're seeing in a lot of different places where you have really ineffective progressive policies, particularly Mm -hmm. on crime, that are so bad that you've got, let's say, a DA getting thrown out of office in San Francisco, an incumbent mayor in real danger of losing in Chicago. That's tomorrow, uh, the first round of that election. And then New Orleans, maybe not quite as high profile some of the other examples that we've talked about but this is a big battle down there it, the big it should be higher profile than it is right i mean new orleans last year for a bit was the murder capital of the united states it ended up getting uh, pushed aside i think it was number two at the end of the year but i mean we have crime that's completely out of control we have a mayor who sides consistently with the criminal instead of the victims and i keep going back to this moment last year was around september in which some kid, I think was 15 years old, was arrested for a number of alleged armed carjackings. LaToya uh, Cantrell shows up to the courtroom during sentencing. This is the mayor. This is the mayor. To support the kid. Walks out as one of the victims is reading her impact statement. Now, apparently this kid had gone to one of the restorative justice programs, one that she happens to be involved with, mm. and she she showed her support, but didn't think just for a moment to maybe sit through the impact statements to hear the results of a system that consistently puts dangerous juveniles through restorative justice instead of in prison or in juvie where they belong, where I do think long-term could actually help them. You wonder, is that just a complete lack of awareness on her part to walk out on the victim or 
is she aware that she's doing it and she just doesn't really want to hear that side of it because maybe it pricks her a little bit and, yeah. and feels like, okay, maybe I'm complicit in some of this. I, I, part of me wonders if it's a little bit of both where these these people on the left who hold these positions, it's like a cult. It's an ideology that they're blinded by, that they believe that the system, the criminal justice system, is inherently racist, systemically racist, that the criminal is the victim of a racist system and a racist society, that you've got racist cops making the arrest, putting them in front of a racist judge and a racist uh, jury, and then they go into this racist prison system. Even and I think if all the aforementioned people are it, do, it does not matter people to them. of color. Well, we've heard that before, right? I mean, we're, we're living in a world in which someone who is black or Latino is called a white supremacist. That happens all the time mm-hmm. because they say, well, you're, you're helping the system and you're part of the system. We're being told that black individuals, for example, also suffer from internalized white supremacy. It is a sickness mm-hmm. and it is so out of control. And I think what's going on in New Orleans and what's gone on in San Francisco in, in L.A. was a failure. But what's going on is people are starting to wake up and they're actually pushing back. And say, let's get this woman out of here, basically. That's the attempt. Yeah, well, well, it, the problem is it's high risk, obviously high reward. But as we learned in Los Angeles County with George Gascon and the failed recall attempt, you lose momentum really, really quickly when you lose that kind of battle. And so you well, go they couldn't up even against get the they couldn't even get the signatures, signatures which is that is a failure. Yeah. So when when you go up against a mayor like Mayor Cantrell and you end up losing if you were to lose. Well, then all of a sudden, I think there's less of a focus on the consequences of her policies because it's seen as a failure. The movement to push back is not really there. The people must like what they see. You'll, you'll spin it and you'll see it spun in a whole bunch of different directions. The same with, again, George Gascon, that killed the momentum against him. It really did. Let's talk about him. This story is crazy. Our colleague here at Fox, Bill Malugin, has been covering it and it's been on the news channel. It's now been at least a year that we've been covering the twists and turns of this story, and it's hard to even keep track of because mm-hmm. it's so complicated and you have to be careful about how you describe everything here. But the bottom line is there was a 10-year-old girl years ago who was sexually assaulted in a violent way in a bathroom at a Denny's restaurant. Her assailant at the time was a young man just about to turn 18. And a few years passed, a number of years passed, and finally they were able to get the guy, figure out who he was, and arrest him and try him. At this point, he was in his 20s, in his mid-20s. Yeah. George Gascon, the aforementioned Soros left-wing DA, he decided that because the sexual assault against this little girl, 10-year-old, had happened years ago, just before the assailant was 18, that the 20-something-year-old guy now had to be tried as a juvenile in that case. By the way, this same assailant, this same criminal, is also now accused of murder, beating someone to death, separate person. Now, when that individual was put into custody, that individual decided to become a woman. And now she's trans, and I think the the birth name was James, and the new name is... Can't even remember Lucy or Heidi or something like that. But remember, the allegations were the only reason that this occurred. And we have some tapes of phone calls with, at the time, his father basically indicating or implying that they're only making this change 
for the purpose of some extra points and for the ability to, to gain to the go system into, exactly and and to try to gain some leniency yeah because this person was trying to figure out can I can I possibly be in a female prison can I be in a juvenile facility because I don't know if I were a 26 year old man and I was looking at the option of being a 26 year old dude in a prison in California or a quote unquote juvenile female. I would imagine those confinement situations are a little different. Just a little bit. So, yeah, he's talking to his dad saying, you've got to call me her now. You've got to call me a female now. And so that's what happened. And the prosecutor on the case, so not Gascon, who's the boss, but the the line prosecutor in the office starts sounding the alarm saying, I think this person is exploiting gender politics and the trans stuff. I don't think this is a genuine transition. This is someone trying to game the system. And Gascon in his office said they got complaints. People were made uncomfortable by this. And they're saying the prosecutor was dead naming and misgendering this felon. And therefore, the prosecutor was suspended without pay. Yeah. Shea Santa is her name. And I think that's important because we should know the names of the people who are actually trying to make good in a system that has been corrupted by ideology. And it's a he, by the way, Shay Or Santa. excuse me, uh, Shay Santa. It, what's, how dare you? I know. Gender. How could I, I only saw a photo of him, so. Relax. I saw a photo of Hannah Tubbs and I still say he. That's it, Hannah. Hannah. Hannah was the name that she chose for herself only after yes, going into custody. It gets to the absurdity of this because when you have crimes, let's say that Hannah is legitimately transgender, which I don't believe. But let's say that that were the case. It's not de- dead naming when you reference someone as a he when that was the identity that they held at the time during that the crime. The crime occurred against so a child. It's important to know this, and I also think it's important for the public to know it because if the public isn't paying attention to the very particulars of this story, people do get a different idea of an alleged assault against a young girl if it was committed by a man or by a woman. There's a different standard that I think some people choose to look at. This. Well, this, It's wrong to look at it a different standard, but that's the truth. This man at the time grabbed the girl by the neck, yep. dragged her into a stall, locked the stall, and started to assault her and only stopped when someone else entered the bathroom, and then he fled. They finally caught him. By the way, the female victim, who's now an adult as well, she was quoted in a Fox News story saying she absolutely does not believe that he is now a she, refuses to go along with that. And part of me only half-jokingly wonders, like, is George Gascon going to track down this victim and charge her with hate crimes for misgendering her own assailant? And look, I made this point. We talked about it. This is a tough issue to talk about in a nuanced way in the three minutes on television. But we talked about it on Outnumbered today. I think that trans people should be treated with dignity and respect when it comes to pronouns and names I try to do unto others. That's my overall approach. Obviously, also, there are perverse incentives where people have a reason to play these games for their own benefit and has nothing to do with trans people or authentic identity at all. And what a disservice to actual trans yes. people, by the way, that you're just going to like jump on this bandwagon to get yourself a lighter sentence or something like that. That to me is outrageous. And it just strikes me that under George Gascon in the city of Los Angeles, where you've got a prosecutor getting suspended without pay for alleged misgendering, I cannot imagine the, the misgendering, by the way, of a child molester and alleged murderer. 
I cannot help but think about the priorities being so far out of whack that it seems like unfixable. In a lot of ways, it's unfixable, certainly under the current staffing, right? I mean, these are political decisions that are being made. And unless people step up and they make different decisions, well, okay, that that is the system that will – ironically, it's going to become institutionalized wokeism, right, where once you change policies, once you change laws, it's very hard to undo, even with elections. Mm-hmm. So in L.A. County, it's a little bit easier because they haven't made so many changes to laws. Washington state has made significant changes to laws. And that's why it's going – let's say we get a uh, Republican-controlled House and Senate uh, in in the Capitol. They better have a lot of support there. They better have a a large enough voting block to overcome a veto by a Democrat. And it's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so it is rather depressing when you truly think about the system that they have set up. And I, I don't think people realize how hard it's going to be to undo it. Which I think is the point, right? They want they want to jam through as much of this social change as possible. And in a place like Washington State, I mean, I was just out there for an event, really fun event, talking to conservatives in that state. And I mean, it is pretty bleak at the moment. You know, you had record inflation and border crisis and a very unpopular president and all that stuff. And the big red wave nationally never really hit. It hit a few places, Florida, Iowa, Ohio. But in other states, you actually had blue waves Mm -hmm. where the wave came crashing down in the opposite direction, including your state, Washington state, where it's not like things are going great there. And you look around and say, wow, this is being managed and governed super well. And there's a lot of people who are unhappy about it. But apparently more people in the electorate are happy with the leadership of Washington state. And if anything, they want they're like, let's get some more of this. And and. I have to say, I feel bad for the people who are fighting on the other side like you in that state. There's also a part of it's like, look, if this is what you want mm-hmm. out there, have at it. I, I suffered through that thought process, too, because part of me just wants to say, look, this is what you voted for. But then, of course, I'm, remember, I remember the fact that, well, I didn't vote for that. So there's going to be other people who are like right. me Many who are trying to push didn't. back. And I, it's not even so much that I think the folks who put the blue wave into effect in Washington believe that it's working. It's that they hate the other side so much or they have such little trust in the Republican Party that they're unwilling to take a chance. With that said, don't forget that Seattle did elect its first Republican to Seattle city attorney. It, she, granted, she had to run against someone who literally campaigned on I'm going to never prosecute any crime whatsoever. So it was a crackpot who she was running against. It was close, but it was close. I'm actually surprised a Republican won. Yeah. I don't think they knew she was a Republican. I think that there was a push at the end to make sure people knew she was originally a Democrat who decided during the Trump years to switch parties, not because of Trump, but because of how the left was simply broken by him Hmm. and how intolerant they became. And that intolerance pushed her to become a moderate Republican. He's not a hardcore conservative. And I think that she's doing a really good job setting the stage for someone who felt uncomfortable voting for a Republican, a moderate to say, okay, she wasn't so bad. Actually, I kind of like the job that she's doing. Yeah, and maybe this can be replicated on other levels. Yeah. Statewide, perhaps, even. Well, let's not go let's crazy. Not, okay, I mean, okay, come okay. on. Sorry, let's, let's... sorry. I don't want to. Now I was getting too excited. 
I was, I Let's was, be realistic I was here. way too pessimistic, <laughs> and I got a little tiny bit of optimism, and then you were like, no, 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 none of that here. But it, yeah. it starts with something, and maybe that's the thing. But, boy, there, there's a lot of difficulty that you are facing and you're fighting every day on your show. KTTH, our great affiliate out there in Seattle, a city that is in so many ways really broken. But there mm-hmm. are great people in your audience and in this audience who are out there fighting the good fight, uh, and, I, and I commend them because <laughs> the fighting needs to happen. Right. And and you can abandon the playing field. It only gets worse. And that hurts people. Ultimately, people get harmed by these left wing policies. So that's why the fight is worth it. Jason Rance, host of his program on KTTH. And we see him all the time on Fox, on Tucker and elsewhere. Jason, great to meet you in person. Yes, great let's to do it again you. soon. Absolutely. All right. We'll say travels. And with that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Last week, we were talking about this situation in East Palestine, Ohio, and the derailment and the political firestorm, the blame game, Pete Buttigieg, all of that. And one of the points that I made a couple times on this show was that if you look at the actual facts, because it took them forever to come up with any excuses, they were trying to, I think, ignore the problem as long as possible, so long as they could get away with it. And then once they realized, okay, we can't really get away with it anymore, Buttigieg was shamed into showing up. Biden still hasn't shown up. He couldn't remember the name of the state for a second. He couldn't remember if he talked to the mayor of the town. I mean, it was not good. But the White House and Buttigieg, they came out with their talking points that this was really about deregulation under Trump, of course. And why won't the Republicans do what's necessary to keep people safe? We talked with Dana Perino about this, too, last week. And there was some in-depth reporting at National Review that showed it was a total red herring. The regulation or the deregulation that they were talking about that started under Obama, that process, and then finalized under Trump, didn't apply to this train. So even if you had all of their points and you accepted and conceded all of them, it still would not have applied to this train that derailed. It was just a made-up story that it took them three weeks to land on a blame Republican talking point, and this is what they came up with. And I said, factually, it is incorrect. Well, I'll tell you who agrees with me. Glenn Kessler is the chief fact checker at the Washington Post, and sometimes we have disagreements with him. And I think he gets it wrong sometimes, but he looked into this. They looked at the data. They looked at the law. And at the Washington Post, their conclusion was that the Democrats blame Trump Blame Republican talking point is not supported by the actual substance of the evidence and would not have applied this scenario to this train. So don't just take my word for it or National Review's word for it. Now the Washington Post as well knocking down this excuse, which leaves the administration, the Biden administration, Pete and Joe and the rest of them with what exactly? Nothing. Can they do any better than this? Evidently not. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Bill Hemmer here in studio when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Benson. 
It's the happy hour on this Monday from New York City. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website as always. Podcast is free of charge on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. On those same platforms, you can also follow me personally at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Refreshing and delicious year-round. I recommend it. If you're 21-plus only, of course, drink responsibly. That's something that we always urge. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Joining us here in studio in New York at the worldwide headquarters of Fox News, it's Bill Hammer, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 Eastern. That's on the AM side on FNC. And Bill, it's always great to see you. Thank you, brother. It's been a minute. Nice to be back with it you. It has been a minute. Yeah. I want to start with your trip to the border. Oh. Because I, I went down there last year and learned a lot. Uh-huh. Where'd you go? I was in Texas. Okay. And went to a few different stops, ended in McAllen. And it's one thing to cover it and to talk to our correspondents who were there and to see the images and know the data. It's another thing to witness it. Yeah. And I know you were down in Arizona in Yuma which is where Republicans just held this field hearing on this very issue. What were you struck by mid-February when you were down there on the ground, eyes on? Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of the Super Bowl, as you know. Fox had it this year. Um, I go every year. This year it was in Phoenix, Arizona. Of course. From Phoenix, Arizona, which I consider the Super Bowl to be the single greatest event that that is held in America every year. I think it's that good. If you drive 160 miles south and west of Phoenix, Arizona, away from the Super Bowl, you see one of the biggest man-made catastrophes that you will on the entire planet. Something that's been going on for two and a half years, if arguably, if not longer. Um, but it's been a real mess and a real crisis since you've had a new administration. And I'm thinking, if we can, if we can get this event so well done, mm-hmm. how can we be so bad at that? And I agree with your observation at the outset. So many of these stories, Guy, our understanding is enhanced so much more by putting your eyes on it and just understanding yourself, looking people in the eye and understanding where things are situated. I learned a ton of things. Um, Just for starters, like 35,000 view. California has a wall. It's 160 miles long. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? They might have a problem here or there, but they've got a wall. And it stops at the Colorado River, which is the border in Yuma, Arizona. So you got Yuma County and the city of Yuma, the county seat there, population 200,000 for the entire county. It is, have you been? Not there. It is a giant, beautiful produce field. It's lettuce and celery and cabbage and broccoli and asparagus. It's where we get 90% of our produce this time of year. And it's coming into the growing season. It's beautiful. So what happened in Yuma? California finished its wall, and all the bad guys, all the cartels, moved the human trafficking and moved the drugs to areas like Yuma. Now, Yuma does have a wall. The Yuma sector goes for 118 miles from the Colorado River down east to, toward where the next, I think, it's the Aho, I think it's the Aho sector, where the next one starts. There's a lot of wall that's built there, but there's a lot of gaps, too. Mm. And the gaps is what the, what the cartels have been exploiting for for a very long time. In conclusion, I would say there were were ladders 
makeshift ladders. The wall is impressive. It's high. It's a good 40 feet up in the air. And it sticks out. And it runs on the horizon forever. This is no small matter. They do manufacture uh, ladders that enable some to climb over. Um, They are able to cut holes in the wall. It usually happens at 2 a.m. They burn a hole through the wall itself. And until Border Patrol or local authorities can stop them, they'll push as many people through that wall as possible. Why do I tell you this? Because they can push drugs through, too. Mm -hmm. The wall is not perfect. The wall will never be perfect. But based on the system we have now, with these giant gaps along the system, whether it's McAllen, Texas, where you were, or Yuma, Arizona, which I was, and there's several hundred miles apart from each other, it can slow it down, but it will never stop it. Um, and that but slowing it down can make a difference, obviously. A huge difference yep. when you consider the number of encounters we've had over the past two and a half years. Fiscal year to date, we just got this number over the weekend. Fiscal year to date, more than a million encounters and hundreds of thousands of known gotaways. So that's October, November, December, January. And into February. And into February. Mm-hmm. Over a million encounters, all these known gotaways. An unknown number, obviously, by definition of unknown gotaways. And that clip on encounters is worse than it was last year. And last year was as bad as it gets. So the Republicans, the House Republicans, hold a hearing down in Yuma. Yeah. Like in the city council. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting in the chairs asking questions. And look, I understand that House Democrats might have decided that maybe this was a political stunt and it was a field hearing, but it was to draw attention to an issue that they were going to blame on the Biden administration. They made the political decision, the Democrats did, to boycott the hearing. Not a single one of them showed up. So it was a Republican-only hearing. They're in the majority, right? So they've got the gavel, and Jim Jordan was there and everything like that. Not to get too partisan on this bill, but it's just frustrating to me as someone who is concerned about the issue, where the data is so bad that it speaks for itself. And you have some Democrats will pop up and chirp occasionally that it's a problem and say that things need to get better. But then when you have a hearing down there and there are tough questions to be asked, they just sort of vacate the playing yeah. field to sort of pretend like it's not really a legitimate hearing. It's, it's That's, so, that sends a signal. Yeah, it's, it's, I've, it's exceedingly disappointing. I can tell you, guy, when I was down there, I saw the list, and there were a few Democrats apparently who were on that list and a few staffers who were going to attend as well. I don't know what happened in the intervening two weeks, but no one did show. Uh, they said that they never received an invitation. I, I, I don't know if that's true. I kind of hard find it hard to believe that it would be. Um, but Republicans ran on that. They campaigned on that in the midterms. That's that They were going to take the hearings out of Washington and take them to places like the border. Um, I don't know what they got from it. I, I really think it got little coverage. Um, a few reports here and there, but outside of that, I don't, I don't think it, I, it wasn't the attention grabber that I think they'd hope for. Did you see the New York times story about these unaccompanied minors? Yeah. So this came out, I think it was yesterday. We talked about it earlier on outnumbered. I was on the couch today and officially, and there are reasons to believe this could be a low ball conservative estimate, but officially there are tens of thousands of minors, children, as young as 12, they say, probably younger, if I had to guess, who we've lost track of. We technically have them in the system, but they've fallen through the cracks. Yeah. And the New York Times profiles and talks about how some of them are now working jobs, like child labor, in very tough conditions. Kids are being exploited. And we know about some of the other forms of exploitation, tragically, on the 
journey up to the border and then on the other side of the border as well here. Traffickers is having a field day. And the the mentality that I had reading that story was when we talk about this issue or here at Fox, we cover the border crisis the way I think it needs to be covered as a real crisis. You have a lot of people, ideologues, partisans, trying to make it seem like there's a tinge of xenophobia or racism to this or it's it's not compassionate to approach the issue this way. And I think people who have generally advocated for maybe not fully open borders, although I'd say effectively that's kind of what we've got right now, but much more lax enforcement or that sort of thing, they wrap themselves in the cloak and the in the banner of compassion. Then you read stories like this about exploitation run amok and so many kids coming over by themselves without adult supervision that we are losing track of the ones by the tens of thousands that we actually have in the system. I don't know how the current reality can be described as anything approaching compassion. Yeah, I, I can't give a good answer because I, I feel the same way. Um, a couple of things I would add to that. Um, if you meet the people in Yuma and these are taxpaying citizens and they're paying their money to the federal government, what are they getting for it? How about nothing? Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a terrible trade. Um, I, I I do feel that, you know, the underage migrants that are uh, – listen, the, the, the truth is among those thousands that you describe, this is human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And where is it happening? In probably big cities and they get lost and it, it it's all sad. Um, Mike Pence was on our show about a month ago and Dana and I were talking to him about the, the border and immigration. And I, I said, can I just ask you why – some believe it's okay. And he said, oh, this is a whole open borders society. I said, well, what is that? Because I don't think we've stopped for long enough to try and understand what those who support an open border society are in favor of. Mm-hmm. It's equity. You have first world and you have third world. And they believe Third world citizens will never have the opportunities that a first world citizen does unless the first world opens up its doors to them. Well, I understand where they're coming from, but you can't run countries that way. You must have a system. And right now, our system is awful. And I, I, I don't know under the current administration if it's going to get any better. I'd be willing to bet today that you're going to have 2.4 million encounters next year. And unfortunately, maybe the year after that. And I know they're, they're working the system to try to manipulate the numbers to make the numbers look less bad. But as long as the flow is coming at the pace that it has been, mm-hmm. they can put the numbers in different buckets. The outcomes, the results are the same. Yeah. Yeah. Just one, one more anecdote that I think you might be interested in. We, we drove um, out of Yuma to San Diego. It's a pretty easy drive. Um, two and a half hours, I'd say, 245, maybe three at the most, and get to the airport, running to catch our plane. I get to the, the gate, and there were people who were boarding this Delta flight, and I, I've been flying Delta for years. So I, I get in line, and the woman says, I'm sorry, sir, we're only boarding those with special papers first. I've probably flown, <laughs> I don't know, 5,000 times in my life. Even if it's 2,500, it's a lot. Mm. I've never heard that before. Yeah, what was this? I, said, I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I'm sorry. 
and I take a step back, and there's two women, and they've show them their papers. They speak no English. They look absolutely shell shocked about everything that was on around them, and they got on the airplane first, and then there were three other men. I I saw no. The, the women were definitely traveling together. I don't know if they were sisters. I I don't know. They weren't mother and daughter. That was for sure. And then the three men were definitely separate. And one looked Asian to me, I guess two others, maybe Africa, maybe. Um, I didn't ask. Um, and they were allowed on the plane next. And they all looked. They were looking around. At, and these are illegal immigrants? Of course they yeah. are. Yeah. And I thought. And they're getting boarded first? I thought, wow. Okay. And that's fine. It, it, the, but I just it, wonder what, like. It wasn't the point that they were getting prior to boarding. To me, I was like, oh, I see. This is happening all the time. Every single day. Every single day on how many other airlines? Probably all of them. Mm. And it was just a handful of people. But this was one flight in one city on one afternoon, and they, they were coming to New York and away from the border. Yeah, and maybe going up to Canada. We've seen that story. Maybe. And now you've got the app where you can apply out of Nicaragua mm-hmm. um, or Venezuela. And you don't have to go to the border. You can fly inland. And I think we have to stop and well, ask ourselves. This is crazy. It's ask just, ourselves, is this, is this the system that we are willing to accept? Well, I mean, so far the answer has been yes, right? It's, it's what's happening. You know, I fly my airlines, United, and one of the first groups that they always board is military. Military. And or they the, always say, those, who need, those with children. Yep, or, and then military. Thank you for your service, they say. And the very first group is illegal immigrants. It's just, you don't have to be some frothing at the mouth racist to, like, be bothered by some of this yeah. stuff. And yet here we are, and, and you just saw it. You reported down there, uh, made good use of that Super Bowl trip to go see some other things, learn some things. Let's take a quick break because yes. when we come back, I do want to lighten things up a little bit. Okay. They, you know what they also have in Arizona? Spring training baseball. Oh, yes. Goodyear, Arizona, home to the Cincinnati Reds in the spring training season. So pitchers and catchers reported a couple weeks ago. The games are underway, and there are some changes this year. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Some controversial changes in Major League Baseball. You're a sports guy, so let's talk about them when we come back. Bill Hammer, our guest in studio in New York on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour, Guy Benson Show. On this Monday, Bill Hammer is with us here in studio. Oh, brother. You can see him every morning, 9 to 11 Eastern, on America's Newsroom. That's on Fox News Channel. Okay, so briefly on sports, mm-hmm. I'm still getting used to this as a baseball fan. I saw a clip on Twitter of a preseason game, spring training. It was Red Sox, Braves. And I did not know what I was looking at. I could not figure out what had happened. So here's what happened. It's bottom of the ninth for Atlanta. Bases loaded, two outs. So a big, big moment, two strikes, the dream. And all of a sudden, the camera shot is on the pitcher. Then the broadcasters start shouting, like, what's happening? What's happening? And then you see the batter walking around confused. You see the umpire gesturing and everyone just screaming. What happened was they've had this this clock in between innings to try to keep things moving. Now they have this pitch, uh-huh. Uh-huh. This pitch clock where you have to throw the ball, you have to pitch the ball within a certain period of time or there's a problem, it also applies to the batter. So I didn't know this. Apparently the batter has to be in the batter's box with at least eight seconds to go before the pitch deadline, I didn't know that either. Or else it's a strike. 
So I guess this batter took a moment out of the box too long to, you know, hit his cleats or whatever. And because he had not stepped back into the batter's box with eight seconds to spare, that is an automatic strike. Wow, that game is over. Strike three, game over, ends oh, in a tie. My- <laughs> and so people well, are going nuts. Now, I so was the ump, does he have a watch in his hand? Or it's, or? it's visible on the screen. So I've seen it, um, as center field camera with the pitcher and the batter and the catcher and the ump. I've seen it off to the side, almost where you would put the play clock in the NFL. Right, and look, you so got that a quarterback could see it. You got play clocks in the NFL. You got shot clocks in basketball. I get it. People want to move the games on, make them a little faster. I get that too, to some extent. I'm not opposed to some of the tweaks that they've talked about with baseball, but there's also something about baseball being not on a clock. And leisurely, and some of the cat and mouse games uh-huh. they can play. I, you know, I'm more of a traditionalist here. Some people are saying these are the new rules; you got to abide by them. They'll adapt, and we'll all get used to it. Maybe so. I just, it is hard for me to accept a bottom of the ninth concluding strikeout <laughs> where the batter's not even there. Yeah. <laughs> Ruled by an umpire who says you were a second late. He's only doing his job. But yeah, I think there's a couple things going on. Um, I think soccer is growing in certain American cities faster than people realize. Soccer has always been on a shot clock, right? First half, second half. Overtimes have a clock. It's a two-hour deal. And if you get extra kicks and extra time, maybe, I get it. I'm just saying my only argument, a further. my only argument is baseball's different. And I yeah. just don't like radically changing America's pastime. That's just me. We got to run. Yeah. But Bill Hemmer, I want to put that. Yeah, you got it. In Inter- your court. So I, to speak. Sh- I shall consider and get back to you on okay. how I feel. Very good. We'll have you back soon. Bill Hemmer, our guest. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today in our first hour, Sandra Smith, our colleague, stopped by. She's, of course, co-anchor of America Reports every weekday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, alongside John Roberts, talking about the economy and much more. Here's part of that discussion with Sandra Smith. We saw in the new Fox News polling some really poor marks for Joe Biden on the economy, on inflation, Uh, There was another poll from ABC News and The Washington Post that found that more than 40 percent of Americans say that they are worse off financially than they were when Biden took office. Only like 16 percent said that they're better off. Biden was asked about it in an interview with David Muir, and he basically said, well, it's because the media only focuses on the negative. I mean, it's also because people know what their financial situations are, Sandra. I find that to be uh, not a terribly persuasive talking point from the president. Yeah, and um, this is what matters most to voters. I mean, time and time again, every election cycle, what do we ask? You know, how are you? How are you and your family doing today uh, versus a couple years ago versus a year ago? In this case, you look at things have only gotten worse when it comes to inflation and the economy. Um, people care about their ability to carry on with their life and not worry paycheck to paycheck. We know 64% of the country is living in that fashion right now, and that that means tough times for so many people. As far as this latest polling goes, it really shows the sting of inflation continues to just rail on the average American family. 57% say they have less money in their pocket than they did a year ago. Now, that is up seven points from the 50% that said they felt that way last February. So that situation is not getting better. It's getting worse, Guy. And 
those feeling hardest hit are Republican women. Uh, 78% um, say they have less money now. Rural whites, 69% of them. Gen Xers, 63% of them. Uh, and voters with annual income below $50,000 a year, guys, 62% of them, uh, say that they have less money in their pocketbook than he did a year ago. And to me, guys, someone who looks at the markets and the economy and the overall, overall economic situation of this country so closely, that to me is a further sign that the very people that the administration says they're out to help the most are getting hurt the most. Um, this inflation situation is extremely painful on the the, the lower-income American families, and that mm-hmm. turned up in this latest polling. We also got the actual inflation data last week. That was bad. I mean, worse than expected on multiple levels. And we read from a number of tweets, Jason Furman, an Obama-era economist, a Democratic economist, was running through that latest inflation report and was just like, Man, the top lines are bad. When you dig in a little further, it's bad. This is an economy that's way overheated. He said 6% inflation is more likely than 2% inflation. He's like, there's a lot of serious warning signs here. And I think some of that came as something of a shock to a lot of people, Sandra, because we had sort of been told that we had turned the corner and the thing was finally heading in the right direction. And even though it might take still a very long time to get down to low inflation, at least we were heading in the right direction overall. And then you look at some of the numbers, it's like, well, not so fast, actually. Maybe there's been improvement here or there, but on other major you know, sectors of the economy and, and goods and services, uh, the numbers are not going the way that they need to go, certainly not at the rate that they need to go. It just felt like That was a a kick in the stomach to a lot of Americans last week, reflecting how people are feeling. They're not making it up. They're seeing what's happening, and here's the data to back it up. Right, and I just saw a Bloomberg piece that was questioning whether this 2% inflation goal is even a realistic target anymore. I mean, what are we talking about here when we're uh, still living through this historic inflation? What I, I get concerned about is that we just learn to live with the inflation, that we just learn to live with it. I mean, guys, look, look at magazines from, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Prices never come down. Once you reach these heights of inflation, it's almost impossible to go back. And so you're going to have to have a major adjustment as far as wages um, from all the businesses in this country are struggling through this. You're going to see all those price uh, adjustments on on your menus when you go out to dinner. Those prices, just rarely do they come back down. Once they're raised, they tend to stay there. And then you have another inflation crisis and they go up again. The disconnect from what we're hearing from those tasked with bringing down inflation should concern everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Janet Yellen sat down in a new CNN exclusive interview and said, so far, so good on the U.S. inflation battle. To your point, Guy, that's not what people are feeling right now. And that's that's really that's really tough. On a political question, Sandra, I saw that the RNC made an announcement that they're going to require all of their candidates who run for president. Right now, there are three who've announced there'll be more that if you want to participate in the debates, which I guess they're saying would start uh, in August, if you want to participate, you've got to sign a pledge to ultimately support the Republican nominee for president, no matter who that is. And I mean, that's all well and good. I remember everyone promised last time in 2016 that they would do that, except Donald Trump. And then he won. And some of the people who had pledged to do it 
then reneged and wouldn't support him. So he wouldn't do it, then they wouldn't do it. And it's like, okay, I just don't really understand what the point of this kind of exercise is because it's totally unenforceable, right? You can you can sign a pledge or not sign a pledge. You sign the pledge to get in the debate and then something changes. Politicians lie and change their minds all the time. It's like, oh, you know, you've got to support the not or else what? I just don't really understand the point of this. Yeah, I mean, she, uh, Ron McDaniel hasn't exactly put the criteria out yet, um, but she does say that she expects a pledge to be part of this. Uh, it was part of 2016, she referenced, and she believes it's a no-brainer. And she said, quote, if you're going to be on the Republican National Committee debate stage asking voters to support you, you should say, quote, I'm going to support the voters and who they choose as the nominee. Uh, she thinks this is a pretty obvious play. I, you know, I think we'll soon see if there's an appetite from voters for this out there. Um, but she said, as RNC chair, if I said I wouldn't support the Republican nominee, I'd be removed from office. So this is obviously um, something she feels very strongly about. Um, but there's going to be some huge econo- economic discussions and foreign policy debates uh, that are going to take place there and could be really hard to avoid <laughs> opposite scenarios popping mm-hmm. up, guys. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yep. But here we go. I mean, we're almost into full-fledged 2024. and. Um, this is going to be a big one. I'll have Nikki Haley on my show tomorrow. Really looking forward to that. Get her reaction to the energy department confirming uh, the lab leak. My full interview with Sandra Smith available online. Part of our full podcast, the entire show, free of charge, on demand, no cost to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the whole show every single day. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Apparently, Christine has done something so reckless that the team was concerned for her own physical safety. I have not heard the story, but we'll hear it together right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Guy Benson Show from New York City. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website. Podcast is always free. Doing the program from the other coast tomorrow, California. Looking forward to an event out in Orange County, heading there tonight. So there's a lot for us to get to, including multiple food and beverage-related topics. In fact, I don't know if we have time to get to them on this home stretch. So let's make a note, Christine. We've got, number one, our collective dinner as a team in New York City on Friday night, Chinese restaurant, very exciting. Wyatt also has something to say about his taste in food. So we'll we'll make a note of that, plus the sandwiches that you guys turned me on to here in New York. And I took your advice, and I'm glad that I did. Delicious. We'll get into that. Plus, Cookie is now the owner, a proud owner, I would say, of a brand-new bottle of wine, courtesy of me indirectly, kind of. And we'll explain how that came into my possession and why I gave it to Christine. All of that tomorrow, perhaps, on the home stretches. We'll make those notes but we have to really focus here on today's home stretch about a story that I still haven't heard. And you guys apparently all know, you and Dan and why, why you've all been cackling and giggling about something that happened at a, was it a car wash? Sure was. A few days ago. And you keep pretending like you're reluctant to tell the story, except you've obviously told everyone and their mother. It's like how you're reluctant to put on a hot dog costume, right? You just... You're itching to tell this story. So what happened? 
This one I'm actually not itching for because I know the audience is going to be like, Christine, like you have to be careful. You can't just go around doing this. But um, all right, set the scene. It was about two weeks ago now. A beautiful Saturday morning in New Jersey. Wait, this happened two weeks ago? Yeah. Oh, I thought this was just a few days ago. No. No. Oh, you've been you've been sitting on this one. Yes. Okay. Uh, my in-laws were coming from Massachusetts. And I was, you know, cleaning the house, getting everything ready. And then I said, you know what? Let me go get a car wash because we were taking the car, not the Buick. That's another story. I don't think <laughs> we're getting that one. But uh, You've given up on your Buick already? No, I got into a fight with the guy, but... <laughs> It's a whole nother story for a different day. So I said, let me get the car washed because we were all going to get in the car that night and go to Judgey Joyce's house for dinner. So I wanted to make sure um, the car was clean. So now I get to the car wash. Do you go to car washes often? Not often, but. But you know how they work. Like, yes. you know, you get. Okay. Yeah. So now there is a line. You get, you pull in, you go around, you know, like you follow the line in and then you wait, you know, right at the beginning of the car wash. Tell the guy how much, what do you want, you know, when they get out. So at the very beginning of the line, there is a car just stopped and he is outside of, but in the line, but he is outside of his car now moving things around, you know, like when you're doing the clean out of the car, putting everything in the trunk. Oh yeah. Now he's doing this though on the line, you know, he's not pulled over. He's not in a parking lot. He's there. He waited to the very last minute, to the very front of the line, to do all of the stuff that he should have done earlier. Thank you. Yes. So I, not being rude or anything, I just politely kind of went around him, um, which was, like, difficult. And then I got into line and didn't think anything of it. I get out of the car. I'm talking to the men, telling them what I want. And all of a sudden, some man comes up behind me and starts screaming and cursing up. No, not behind me. Like, he was coming up his car. So he's still in the car. And now he's screaming and cursing at me. Like, how rude do you have to be? It's, like, disgusting that you had to go around me. And he's, you know, you couldn't bleep and wait, you know. And at first I looked at him. I'm like, I just said, I'm like, you, you're crazy. I'm like, what is happening here? And then he, we kept going back and forth a little bit. And then he called me a word that I cannot and will not say on oh, air. The the that one. Yes. Wow. And at that point, I said, seriously, I went like this. I go, get out of the car. Let's go right now. Come on. I said, come at me. Get out of the car now. You're challenging what to a physical fight? I didn't know. I was I like blacked out. Guy, like I was the hands were flat. I'm like, get the bleep out of the car now. Wow. I'm like, let's go. And he, he said something else. I'm like, buddy, I'll go all day with you. Let's go. He did not because then the men were kind of like, hey, everybody, like, calm down, calm down. And he's still, like, cursing me out. So I go through the car wash. I pay. And then I make sure I stand outside right in front of the door because I knew he would have to pass me. And I didn't want him to think that I was scared of him. He comes out, sees me. Turns around and goes back inside. Like, I'm the crazy one. Like, he's scared of me. No, he was probably embarrassed. You think so? I think he was probably embarrassed. I can't explain to you the anger. And and I just want everybody to know, I did not have Megan with me. This I don't think I would have reacted obviously this way if anybody was with me. But then I went and called my husband to tell him the story. He got mad at me. 
Bobby said that I was the problem because he's like you. He, he didn't. He didn't use that word, did he? No. Okay. I just I'm still make married sure. him. <laughs> but Bobby said in this day and age, he's like Christine. You do not think straight when you get angry, and in this day and age, you have no clue who this man is. If he's crazy, if he has a gun, if he has a knife. You see too many stories of random things happening over, like, a parking spot or, you know, like, cutting somebody off in the highway. And he's like, and you cannot, as a five foot three woman, start telling people, let's go, and you're going to fight them. All right, come at me, bro. <laughs> I said, I'll go all day long with you. Wow. Well, the first thing that I think of is there must be security footage of this, and I would love to see it because it sounds – now that everything is over, it does sound somewhat entertaining. Secondly, like just politely going around him is completely reasonable. Thank you. That's you could have you could have been honking and cursing at him. Like, buddy, you got to do this beforehand. You can't hold up the whole line. What are you doing? You just went around him, and then he decided to fly off the handle at you. He's at fault. I even said that to him at, at part of our back and forth. I said, dude. Do not get online if you're not ready to get the car washed. Right. And Bobby said to me, Christine, you should have just waited. You should have you should have said that he had performance anxiety. <laughs> See how he would have reacted to that. I need you on speed dial at all time. Yeah, for a good insult. Yeah. Hey guy, I'm in another fight, so, you know, at the supermarket. Yes, let me put you on speaker. Please please speak to this man. I get it. The only choice that I question I, I question two choices. Number one, sort of the inviting a physical altercation, not probably the best move. I think you going off on him, going jersey on him is completely acceptable and deserved, justified. I think sort of like the come at me type thing is a little bit dangerous. And then the waiting afterwards, I would have paid for my car wash ahead of him, by the way, and gone on your merry way for the rest of your day as opposed to waiting because it's like the second confrontation where – you don't know where that would have gone. I know, but I was so angry at that point, and I didn't want him to think that I was scared or running well, away. He, he clearly didn't think that because you'd already screamed at him <laughs> so, with your arms, you know, flailing. So well, I don't, I don't think that was the worry here. Yeah, and like I said, when he came out, you know, you know, when you have to tip and then mm-hmm. you get into your car. Mm-hmm. When he came out and saw me sitting right there, he turned right back around, right back around, which and is typically inside. the reaction you get from most people, but just for different reasons. Now, can I just say, at one point, as a quick aside, you mentioned that you might not get the Buick because you, quote, got into a fight with the guy. Is this a different fight with a grown man that you've now been involved yeah, in? Yeah, but I didn't threaten him physically yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. This uh, Bobby's handling this one. But uh, he, he, we had worked out prices with him, and he had said once he got the car, we were just going to do this quickly. Oh, did he renege? I mean, he went, it was $150 more a month than what he had told us. Oh, no. So we said no, and he could not understand. So then I grabbed Bobby's phone, and I'm texting away. And then Bobby, like, deletes half of it because mm-hmm. it wasn't very nice. But we've been going back and forth with him. And then finally I just called him. I said, this is unacceptable. And he's like, you don't seem to get the car business. Like, every month these rates are changing. Like, the industry is, like, upside down right now, and he has no say. And I said, that's fine. Um, I think I'm actually going to make a smart move here. Breaking news? I think I'm actually going to do something very, very smart. Uh, but you often think that what you're doing is smart is the problem. We're just going to buy out our car and maybe not have a payment for a while. And Your current it. car? Yeah. And you don't need a new one. It's a 2020. Yeah, that's a new car. 
Right. My car is a 2017. I bought it. I drive it. There's not a monthly payment. Yeah. So the buyout's not bad at all. We could just pay for it and then No, that does make sense. But it's like, so you're going to put on the shelf your desire to have the newest car and just have a perfectly fine car that works? Yes. I endorse. I endorse. We've got to go. Back here tomorrow from California on The Guy Benson Show. New York today, California tomorrow. So much going on. So much drama in Christine's life. Maybe tomorrow's home stretch will have to postpone the food talk again because she'll have another physical confrontation with some stranger. Who knows? We'll find out together on The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.